Capital Allocators is brought to you by 10 East, an investment platform for sophisticated investors to access private markets. 10 East brings benefits of having your own family office without the cost and headaches of doing so. It's founded and led by Michael LaFell, former deputy executive managing member of Davidson Kempner. Michael and his investment team offer members the opportunity to co-invest by offering at their discretion. Michael and his team source, diligence, and commit material personal capital to each investment. The opportunities shared on the Tennis platform offer exposure to private credit, real estate, niche venture and private equity, and other idiosyncratic investments that typically aren't available through traditional channels. The principals have over a decade track record of investing in these types of exposures across more than 350 transactions. Post-investment, the Tendies team conducts ongoing monitoring and reporting, just as you'd expect from an institutional investment organization. I've known Michael for about a decade, and after becoming impressed by the quality of Tendies offerings, its research process, and high-quality investment team, I became an advisor to the organization and investor in multiple offerings. You can learn more and join me as a member at 10east.co. That's the number 10, east.co. Capital Allocators is brought to you by SRS Aquium. Since 2007, SRS Aquium has been obsessed with a single purpose, to simplify the administration of M&A deals so that deal parties and their advisors can focus on bigger issues. SRS Aquium was the pioneer in professional shareholder representation, digital M&A payments, and online stockholder solicitation, and they continue to raise bars and set industry standards. Case in point, their new VDR, which is changing the way deal parties think about virtual data rooms. No more tracking down thumb drives or asking how the VDR bill got so high. SRS Aquium keeps deal documents securely stored on the cloud for as long as you want for one flat rate. And working with SRS Aquium means you get the simplicity and stability of a single best-in-class partner from the pitch book through the last dollar out. 50% of U.S. private equity firms and 40% of venture capital firms worldwide count on SRS Aquium to optimize their deal process. To learn more about how SRS Aquium is simply the smartest way to run a deal, head to srsaquium.com. That's S-R-S-A-C-Q-U-I-O-M dot com. Hello, I'm Ted Seides, and this is Capital Allocators. This show is an open exploration of the people and process behind capital allocation. Through conversations with leaders in the money game, we learn how these holders of the keys to the kingdom allocate their time and their capital. You can join our mailing list and access premium content at CapitalAllocators.com. All opinions expressed by Ted and podcast guests are solely their own opinions and do not reflect the opinion of Capital Allocators or their firms. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as a basis for investment decisions. Clients of Capital Allocators or podcast guests may maintain positions in securities discussed on this podcast. Last year, four of my oldest friends in the business and I got together to banter about a range of investment topics. Now, admittedly, I pretty much had to pull their teeth to make it happen that first time. But after having so much fun with it, our old gang didn't hesitate to do it again. Our dinner crew, 
Meredith Jenkins from Trinity Wall Street, Casey Whalen from Truvo Partners, Brett Barth from BBR Partners, John Harris from Alternative Investment Management, and I gathered and riffed on long-short hedge funds, private markets, Africa and other empty rooms, potential canaries in the coal mine, continuation funds, co-investments, our favorite investment types, and blind spots. At the end, we had a chance to pay tribute to John's father, the legendary Ira Harris, who graduated from his amazing life here on Earth earlier in the year. I hope you enjoy the show. And if you do, this week, if you're single and walking down the street while listening to Capital Allocators, and look up and see a beautiful woman or man coming your way, what better way to get the conversation going than saying, excuse me, but do you happen to know about Capital Allocators? They might respond, that sounds amazing, and start a really interesting conversation. Who knows? It could be the beginning of a beautiful relationship. Thanks so much for spreading the word. Please enjoy our second Friends Reunion. Why don't we go around just so everyone can recognize voices, so just say your names. Meredith Jenkins. Casey Whalen. John Harris. Brett Barth. It's the Friends Reunion, too. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Let's start with public markets. Big tech sell-off, value stocks maybe dead, long-short equity struggling. Any thoughts, John? What's been interesting is watching some of the younger people in the industry every time that the market sells off, they're ready to pile all in. It feels like things are going to bump around and move in a sideways band for a while and figuring out managers who have experience and can pick securities, have an opportunity to make some money here. But our focus right now is make sure you don't lose money and then pick the places where you can go on the offense. So is long short dead? No, it's a very difficult model. There's probably only 20 good managers out there. How many of them are in your portfolio? Uh, <laughs> 21. <laughs> now, I think that you look back, a lot of managers have never shorted and have never had to short. All these long short managers who got into the privates are dealing with that. So you got business risk. It's figuring out people who can take that long-term approach. And a lot of managers are ready to hang it up. They're going to have to fight their way out of their holes. So I don't think a lot of people are willing to do that. And you can find the people who may have been knocked down, but will get back up. We've seen it in the past. And some of the best time to add to a manager is when they're down, as long as they haven't gone dumb overnight. I also think that there are a lot of managers who used to know how to short and didn't get compensated to do that over the past 15 plus years and haven't done it in a real deliberate way in a long time. They did quite well by finding a handful of stocks that they would put a concentrated portfolio in and just hold them long and think they were going to hold them forever. And that's not the environment we're in now. One thing that's really been clear this year is asset allocation has worked. If you're a multi-asset class investor, publics, privates, we would say it's actually worked really well. And the things that have gone down are pretty rational. It's not surprising with rates going up and some of the overvaluations that we felt like were rich in early 21 are starting to come down. And the pendulum swings. It's this tough market with everything going down. But I think with good stock pickers, which it's been hard to be recognized on the long side as a stock picker, I think it's great. There's more to come. There's going to be more dislocations. There's going to be winners and losers. But if you have a long time horizon, I think the opportunity set's great. On the hedge funds, I just think it's such a big thing, right? So it's like what you focus on within the hedge funds matters. We've actually been using it as a liquidity area because they have held up well in the portfolio. And we've been rebalancing from that. Meredith nailed it on the shorting. 
if you can run a concentrated portfolio and you know what your goals are, we want equity-like returns. So we're probably willing to take a little bit more volatility there. But we're mindful of big drawdowns that feel like long-only drawdowns that we find unacceptable. But we have to have people that know how to short. And once we see them steering away from that and adding in passive indices is when we get out. Lastly, ours is more global-oriented, even more non-U.S. than U.S., not because we necessarily have a viewpoint on those markets, but we feel like they're less efficient. The talent pool is there, and there's just less competition. If you can find a manager who actually can short, it can work. But the original model that we all grew up with, a lot of those funds are too big to short. It just doesn't work anymore. And it's finding managers who will return capital as they get big. Going to your point about size, we have a number of managers who every year they're up return capital and being disciplined, which is very difficult for people. You see everybody going out and creating new products, raising money, telling us we can't run it at more than X dollar. Then all of a sudden they're at 2X and they're going, well, the market's changed. The market's gotten bigger. Value stocks have been killed for a long time. All of these long only active managers alongside hedge funds have underperformed. Now we're talking like a decade. At what point in time do you start to question Maybe in the U.S., this passive thing isn't so bad after all. I would take the other side of that. I don't think cyclical stocks are dead. Cyclical stocks are worth owning, but they're not worth owning all the time. It relates to our conversation about hedge funds. You want to own high-quality companies for a long time, and given the nature of our clients, tax efficiently. None of those things equal hedge fund. But in strategies like cyclicals, where you don't want to be long all the time, You need to be somewhat macro informed. Long short's actually a great way to have exposure because you don't want to own the banks and the commodity companies and the industrials forever. There are periods in the cycle you want to own them, there are periods when you don't. The other place that that's totally true, emerging markets is not a good buy and hold marketplace. But between being macro informed, more alpha opportunity, more short opportunities, it's a good place to own hedge funds. I think those are places where active managers can add a lot of value. At the same time, this is one of the most confusing macro environments we've ever been in. I think it's more confusing than the middle of the pandemic. What is the Fed going to do? What is going to happen with inflation? What's going to happen with geopolitics? One of our huge investment themes is deglobalization. How's that going to play out? It makes it very hard to have a lot of confidence in generic long short stock picking because you've got to have a lot of assumptions about a lot of different things if you're going to model a company's long-term prospects. How do you play deglobalization in a multi-manager, multi-asset portfolio? We think about it two ways. One's private markets, one's public markets. On the public markets, we view it as a good thing because over the last several decades, as the world got flatter, global equity markets got more correlated. Higher correlation is really bad for those of us in the asset allocation business. A deglobalization, the world being less flat, means capital flows are going to be less connected. Therefore, being globally diversified is a better thing. So from a purely public market perspective, that's a simple answer. There are a number of things you can do to play deglobalization as it relates to the U.S. and onshoring of manufacturing in the U.S. We're doing a lot of that through private equity funds. A lot of private equity funds that we invested in 10, 15 years ago, where they had offices in China, and part of what they were doing was helping companies either sell into China or source into China. The value added they're providing now is how do you deglobalize your supply chain or how do you move sourcing somewhere else? So their emphasis has changed. Infrastructure, we've invested in shipping businesses, rail car businesses, barges. 
domestic transportation infrastructure funds in the United States, funds that focus on light manufacturing here in the U.S. There's a lot to do if you think there's going to be a sourcing, distribution, manufacturing, I won't call it a renaissance, but secular growth here in the United States. This quality stock idea, which we're all just going to nod our heads now and say, yeah, we want to own quality stocks for the long term, is no different to me than small cap and value 20, 25 years ago. Look at the academic research, you want to be small cap and value. What do you guys think about quantitatively defined value stocks as a style today? We all grew up as value people, right? And then I think slowly over the last few years, we've been making sure that we're just not unintentionally 100% value. And so we've actually balanced, I think, without having to um, lower our standards on manager selection, we tried to balance out actually our portfolios in the public equity side between value and growth. And there's definitely negative business quality selection bias and value. So to Brett's earlier point, you might want to own cyclicals sometime, but it doesn't marry with our five to 10 year hold on other things. So you need not only to find managers that can be in the space, but be very aware of the risks that you're taking and the timing and the valuations that you're taking it. And then we used to do this back, Teddy, when we worked together, but you play off the volatility of the managers and the opportunity set within it. I don't need every manager kicking it at every time. I just need the portfolio at the U.S. equity level or the international equity level to be working. And so I think if you can have a balanced portfolio and then you have to be more alert around valuations not market timing, but really valuation discipline around what you're doing. And you might be early and a little late, but that's going to protect you from getting completely whipsawed by these factor risks. Some of the managers call it factor aware, but we definitely have value managers. We definitely have growth managers, but we're not biased either way. And I think it's really about stock selection, individual stock selection. It's a well-diversified portfolio. How do any of us know for sure that today's long-term quality holds aren't? tomorrow's nifty 50. We just can't make that call. So you've got to have managers who have the skill set and the knowledge and experience thinking about value stocks to have that in your portfolio. And the onus is on us to know as well what's in our portfolio so that we're not making these unintended bets on the same 20 stocks that everyone wants to be in. Really sum it up is being nimble and picking managers. Too many managers now are selling a product and they get locked in. So it's really coming down to manager selection. It's being able to find people who are investing their own money and they're not going to have to be red or black every day. They can maneuver and are also willing to sit out when there's not opportunities. I really want to talk about the hedge fund long short box. I was thinking about this this morning. When I started in the business 92 until the crisis, so say first 15, 16 years, interest rates were probably four to 8% moving around. And since then, roughly zero. So people don't talk about this, but maybe I should give the example. If I have a fund and Casey Smart says, you're going to give me a hundred bucks to invest in the fund. I'm going to buy a hundred dollars of stocks with it long. And then if I'm going to short, I got to borrow the stocks. I'm going to probably borrow Brett's because I want to be on the other side of Brett. So I'm borrowing his stocks. I give him cash collateral, which I get from selling the stocks into the market. There's an opportunity cost of the cash. So he's got to pay me an interest rate. And the last 10 years, that interest rate was zero. Cost is negative most of the time, right? Trying to simplify it. So rates go back, pick a number, more long-term normal, 5%, you're going to get paid, call it four. No one's talking about that in the long short box. You're trying to make eight and half that return could come back if rates keep going up. I think we thought about that a lot the last time there was a tightening cycle. Now the Fed only got to two and a quarter, two and a half, so it didn't matter enough. If the Fed gets to four or 5%, it matters a little bit more, but I don't think it matters enough. 
if you're 60 gross short and you're getting a rebate of 4%, that's 2.5%. That's material, but I'm not sure it's material enough if you're not adding enough alpha, especially if you're charging traditional hedge fund fees on top of it. You have to be good at shorting. This is my opinion, but the people who are good at shorting are passionate, love every detail of news that comes out about the companies that they're short and going into the store or whatever the case might be. They live and breathe that. Those people just got washed out by a market that only went up. And there's only so much you can do hitting your head against a brick wall. There's a handful of them out there, but it's just not as big a pool. Brett, to your point, if people are paying full fees, it hasn't been worth it except for the pods, which seem to continue to deliver and sucking up all the portfolio managers. Do you look for the guy who was washed out, Meredith, like that used to short but doesn't? Rates come back up. The box looks a little better. Today, everyone's invested in the large funds and they seem to be delivering. There's like huge dispersion in long short. That comment that it hasn't worked, I don't think that that's true for everybody. A lot of these funds that have just gotten so big that to Meredith's point, you cannot short the way that you used to as your size goes up on the long side. And especially if you're then levered long on the long side, which a lot of these guys did, it's even harder to do the shorting and the number of ideas and the size you have to move up market. Everything, the whole mousetrap as you get bigger and bigger and bigger unravels. So I think it's about finding new talent, honestly. This constant iteration, it's not moving out of your lane, but it's this idea of self-improvement and constantly trying to better yourself and understand what you're doing. I always use Nikolai Tangent at AKO, the epitome of this, I think. Just this constant stay in your lane, but want to be improving, improving, improving versus before you could pick your portfolio and sit for a while and it worked, but that doesn't work anymore. So does that mean the playbook is you're okay with the structure of the fees you just have to find the right managers. Well, John should talk about fees, but I- <laughs> <laughs> and capping expenses. Don't yes. forget expenses. It's always interesting as you ask manager, how do you think about liquidity in your portfolio? Very few managers answer it anywhere beyond I own X amount of stocks long and this size, and I used to run this amount. Very few will actually talk about the liquidity on the short side. And I think going to Casey's point, that's where the trouble shows up first. When talking to managers, we push them. Not many managers are very thoughtful about it. They typically give you the, I'll know when I get there. And we've all lived through that before. Pushing managers and how do you think about it? How do you monitor it? How do you spend time on it is key because a lot of them just don't. Let's turn to private markets. It's a lot of money. We know that. Is private markets hedge funds or private equity or both? (laughs) (laughs) Meredith, where do you think private equity goes from here? I tend to be a skeptic (laughs) in general. And sorry, I asked this question to all of you in the email before today. (laughs) (laughs) But but no one answered. Is there enough dry powder out there to bridge between here and there? Just a ton of money was raised over the past couple of years. There is no real forcing mechanism on valuations. So if you don't have to raise money, you don't have to mark down. It's going to take a while. My question is, is this cycle going to be that long? At the shortest, it's quarters. It's probably going to take more like years. And where will we be in 2024, 2025? And people will be able to raise money again. How different does it look on buyouts versus venture? I have no information whatsoever to back me up as I say this. But my anecdotal sense is versus the last big cycle. I'm thinking of before 08, 09 and 00 to 03. 
I feel like this cycle, in my mind, and this is a mistake that we all need to be careful of, me especially, it rhymes most with that cycle. But this cycle versus that cycle, venture capital firms have a lot more money than they had back then. And the nature of the businesses that have been founded over the past 10 to 15 years, those are very asset-like businesses. And so they're not expensive to keep going. The biggest expense, honestly, is the people. So there's that impact, but it's not like some factory that you're building and semiconductor chips and all of that stuff. The managers who have the most money could stretch it out until the next cycle. I totally agree with Meredith. If you look at the 08, 09 cycle and the investments that were made 06, 07 vintage, in those vintages, the IRRs were bad and the multiples were bad from 07 to ultimate realization, but they weren't necessarily negative. The other thing that all the managers have also learned is that LPs hate markdowns. So all the managers that marked their portfolios down heavily in 2020 in the pandemic and then marked them back up in 21 actually got a lot of heat. To your point, if these companies are going to live, why do I need to mark them down to mark them back up? I certainly might not ever realize a higher price than today, but I'll ultimately be able to realize today's price. Obviously, they all have to get audited and it all has to be Gap and you've got to get Houlihan Loki or someone else to sign off on the valuation. But I don't think you're going to see the volatility in private markets. You're just going to see a real slowdown in realization activity because it's going to get stretched out. Yeah. We were talking to one of our VCs recently, and they were saying they think for the strong companies that raised capital at the right time, the multiples are not going to go back up for the foreseeable future. What they're going to do, though, is if they are strong companies and they're still good and market leaders, they're going to grow into the valuation, which is, I think, what Brett was alluding to. You're going to have that where you're going to have no marks, but you are going to have triage companies that did not raise money and are going to die. The strong companies anecdotally we're hearing are doing rounds at the same value or they're raising venture debt so they don't have to do a markdown. I think there'll be a dispersion on it, but you're not going to see the highs because it's just going to be flat for a while. Yeah. And I also think that with the kinetic pace of fundraising over the last 18 months, everybody came back to market and was raising money. So most firms are sitting on a ton of money. question is how much of that money is going to go into existing portfolio companies and be able to play that game. I have a question, actually. Peers, institutions that are potentially out over their skis in terms of their private exposure. Is anyone hearing yet of private equity managers getting the call of, please don't call? I've heard a few stories, but nothing significant. I have heard a lot more people engaging with the secondary funds. We know people who've gotten great prices. So I think you'll continue to see a lot of that. That's what we've been hearing. But evaluating those things are even harder in terms of what discount you might be buying into. We have almost no privates in our hedge fund portfolio. And where we do have privates, it's relatively small and really transparent. So I feel like there's this giant hedge fund problem of all these hedge funds that have big private portfolios, but I think it's limited to a relatively small number of very large funds. Although I feel like I'm answering the wrong question, just looking at Ted's face. (laughs) You were, but that's okay. (laughs) And an interesting answer nonetheless. By the way, I'd also take the other side of private equity being flush in that the number of managers that are looking to raise new funds today is epic. And they can't, whether it's the fact that marks have not come down, but public equity valuations have come down, realizations have slowed, you do have a denominator problem. And actually, not only have marks not come down, but marks went up a lot last year, equity markets have come down this year, 
the asset allocation issue is pretty substantial. It's making the private equity fundraising market actually incredibly difficult. Now, the amount of dry powder in with private funds is so big that I don't worry about companies raising capital or companies being able to go private or whatever it happens to be. But funds that don't have great recent results or funds that just mistimed this fundraising cycle are in a lot of trouble right now. When you say recent, not great results, is that managers who just didn't sell stuff right away? Because I feel like all the results still have not yet been flushed out. Maybe I'm focusing more on private equity, buyout, growth equity than venture. But there are a lot of funds that were probably second quartile, the last two or three funds. And I'd say this is true for us as a firm. You're a second quartile fund. You do first quartile once, you do a third quartile once, and you forgive it. They've been great partners. You've been in the last three or four funds. The re-up process was relatively straightforward. That is unequivocally not the case anymore. We would be investing two times more than we have just in re-ups if that was the case. There are a lot of good, not great managers that would have their big LPs write similar or larger checks almost de rigueur when they came back to market, and it's just not happening. You do have to split the venture and the buyout stuff. Recently, I've been struggling with this almost philosophical question of who's right, the public markets or the private markets, because the public markets are valuing a business and psychology. And the private markets, it's just the business. Psychology goes through the roof, it crashes back down, and then you don't know who's right. But that's the whole idea. If you can hold it through the cycle, it doesn't really matter. Everyone assumes that it's the private equity guys that aren't marking it down, but maybe it's the public markets because you're marking every day. It's just wrong most of the time. That's the inefficiency that our active managers take advantage of. You hope. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) The other side of the private stuff, you do have this fundraising bottleneck. But I keep scratching my head on returns because there's two dynamics of the pricing environment going up. One is just they're paying more. And then the banks and the lenders don't lend any more than they used to. In the old days, if you were doing buyouts at eight or 10 times and the banks are lending five or six times, you have a fair amount of leverage on the deal. Now, the same companies are at 16, 17 times. The banks are still lending five or six times and it's 60% equity. You can't even call it a leveraged buyout anymore. So the returns almost have to come down. So much is now talk about growth. Buyouts used to be the value side of the equation, and now it's growth. In the last few years, just because the multiples, because of the leverage levels and everything were getting so high, we pulled back and started doing growth equity, not necessarily venture growth equity, but- Old-time growth equity. Businesses that are growing. Old-time, where you're using less leverage, it's a good business, it needs to go to the next level, it needs to build the sales force to go into another market or launch a product, and you have actual expertise helping them do that. We love that. That's to us way less risky. You're not relying on public markets to exit. You're actually funding into the large funds potentially and the multiple arbitrage. Everything's shaken up right now, but I still think that stuff's compelling if you can find the right GP to back and you're not relying on these market dynamics to play. It's going to slow down because of financing and stuff like that, but they don't rely as much on the leverage. So it's not as much of an issue. And I totally agree with Casey, and we've been doing the same thing. Whether you pay 15 times or 12 times for a business doesn't matter if that business can compound at 25%. That business only compounds at 5 to 10%, then you're in a lot of trouble based on what you pay. So if you're actually good at either identifying companies that have growth prospects or helping them grow at a higher rate, not to say you want someone who's not disciplined on price but it makes a much bigger difference than entry price. And that's different than our view 10, 15 years ago, where it was all about value and buyouts. 
So if you looked at the sector composition of your private assets today, what you're describing is a lot more software, a lot more technology, a lot more healthcare, because those are the areas that are growing. The old school private equity wasn't that at all. It was manufacturing, basic business. There's some other stuff in that too, like healthcare office roll-ups, parking lot construction roll-ups. Where we're seeing it the most in our particular portfolio is roll-up oriented type stuff. But it's in rural communities all over the country, pulling these businesses together and building them at scale. I was about to say, we have seen it in a bunch of businesses and back to the deglobalization U.S. infrastructure, whether it's in aggregates, aggregating aggregates businesses or window installers, window installers, (laughs) the companies that do power line servicing that have been mom and pop businesses. There's a lot of places you can find growth. It makes me a little nervous that they're roll-ups and it's too much financial engineering, but there's a lot of ways to manufacture growth in industries that are both growing and too fragmented today. I want to go back to something, Meredith, that you touched on when we did. You just mentioned you were interested in Africa. (laughs) And you know, I love these so-called empty rooms, these places. For vacation? (laughs) (laughs) All of the above. So yeah, it hasn't, that hasn't been particularly easy. You probably didn't get, you were going to South Africa. The right most expensive Omicron. vacation I never went on. <laughs> <laughs> was that a COVID trip? COVID? That was two weeks in South Africa this past December that we booked in 2019 and we canceled on December 13th of 2021. Oh. Hmm. And what, Omicron was announced like Omicron the day after Thanksgiving. Omicron was spiking in South Africa. <laughs> oh. um, anyway, sorry. So. The idea is these places that other people either can't or aren't interested in looking at for whatever reason. I think what I said last year was I would do it in a heartbeat in my personal portfolio, which actually I haven't done yet, but that's my own. (laughs) But we actually put a ton more time into it at an institutional level and have backed a startup Africa public equities fund relatively recently. A couple of things became more interesting to me as we did more work on it, in addition to some of the stuff I mentioned last time. The space is crazy unbelievable in terms of the amount of capital that left it in the past five years. And big name firms that we would all know who just shut down because all the capital left. That's a tough thing. The capital comes in waves. And I do have that experience of you need to take money off the table when it actually comes in. And so I hope that that's something I'm able to continue being focused on when that opportunity comes. But the valuations are extremely attractive because there's just not a ton of money there. And someone on my team corrected me. I had made a description. I said, look, in a large, well-diversified portfolio, this is kind of like our venture. And their comment was, yeah, except it's like beer companies and banks. It's not exactly venture. (laughs) But these are real businesses with cash flows and earnings and revenues and all of that. We didn't go big direct into commodities for institutional reasons. And we had other fights that were bigger that I wanted for the portfolio. And so we didn't take that fight on similar to many of our peers who have had to take that fight on in their portfolios. I didn't want to do that. Africa tends to do quite well when commodity cycles tend to do well. And we think there are lots of reasons why they have attractive exposure to that. One thing I've gone back and forth on, whether it's a positive or a negative, is China's really struggling. China became a really big force in Africa from the OO's time period. So there's a potential negative from that. The potential positive I can make an argument for as well is they built out a ton of infrastructure, and that is all there. To the extent that that local economies can pick stuff up. And these companies, they're local affiliates of large multinationals. What do the valuations look like of those basic businesses? 
high single digit. There's some stuff in the teens for sure, but that's crazy. When you look at those markets though, my counter would be one, fund flows probably matter more than fundamentals. Two, things like rising US interest rates are particularly bad for emerging markets or speculative markets of any kind, but particularly emerging or even frontier markets. A strong dollar is terrible as it relates to countries that are geared either towards exporting. And even if you're not making a commodity play, a lot of the economic activity in those countries is driven by commodities and a strong dollar is particularly bad for that. You're taking on political risk. You're taking on currency risk. Can you be actually compensated for that litany of things at the end of the day? I think if your entry price is attractive enough, yes. Brett, the only thing I'd say that even though what you laid out is right, this time around, emerging market bonds have outperformed the rest of the world. In recent history, every time there was some US rising rates problem in the US, emerging markets, US sneezes, they catch cold. But that hasn't been the case with emerging market bonds so far. That's totally fair. But the research I read (laughs) suggests that this time the emerging markets are in much better shape in terms of their dollar exposure. So actually, it isn't the same as it's historically been. I wouldn't rely on that. This is why I go back to it's a small position in a large diversified portfolio that I think is well positioned. Is there anything else you guys are looking at that you think other people aren't? Same kind of thing. Could be a small position. There's crypto. There's biotech. Things that are washed out that other people really aren't interested in. It's not crypto. Not for you. (laughs) We continue to look at the national security space. You're starting to see a lot of funds jump up, small, big. You got Steve Feinberg, who's doing a large fund. We think that there's a lot of tailwinds with the money that's going to be spent, as well as the need for it. There's some earlier stage things, but we just think that there's some great opportunity if you can maneuver your way through the process. Typically, a lot of these are not just single use, some are dual use, which we prefer, really reduce the risks. There's a lot of money going into cyber. I think cyber is going to be very difficult. I think a lot more money will be lost than made because you always have to ask yourself the question, what's stopping Microsoft from coming in and walking over XYZ company? We're very excited about it. The drones, Ukraine has really opened up a lot of people's eyes. When the story's written about Ukraine, especially on drones and AI and open source data, it's really going to be a game changer and a real inflection point in these industries. Others? Hedge funds? No. (laughs) (laughs) I talked earlier about how I think the environment's really confusing and it's difficult and hard to suss out. In the global financial crisis, there was stuff to buy. After you were done being short RMBS, there was RMBS to buy. There were lever loans at 60 cents on the dollar. There was public markets to stress for control. The list of things we could be opportunistic in was big. And even during the pandemic, whether it was high-quality companies with cash flow on their balance sheet, doing distress and hospitality, biotech investing, there was interesting things for us to do. One of the things we find frustrating today is that list. There was a reason that you heard some silence to that question. We all bought the biotech dip, and we've all made a little bit of money doing that. Most of the massive sell-off in speculative public tech companies, all right, it was trading at 10 times revenue, then it was trading at five times revenue, now it's trading at two times revenue, still not clear it's cheap. A lot of the stuff that's pretty heavily dislocated is not a buy. We're spending a lot of time thinking about credit versus equities. And even is investment grade credit more interesting than public equity markets? Again, harder for us given the taxable nature of clients. 
it's a little frustrating in that we're finding interesting, less correlated stuff to do. As I said, we just did a barge business. There's some more real assets type things that we really like today. And with more difficult financing, the expected return on equity is a lot higher to make those investments. But our usual playbook of buying dislocation and having a lot of things that's really neat just isn't there today. So the other side of that is the real dislocation hasn't happened yet. Right. And cash isn't trash. And if the Fed raises another 75 basis points, cash is a whole lot less trash. There are a lot of people out there forgetting that sometimes the best thing to do is nothing. Unfortunately, this business gears you towards you got to do something. It's the only way to make a name for yourself. We've all seen enough cycles where not losing money is more important than anything else. Sometimes you just got to pull back and wait for your spots and be patient. A lot of people just don't have that patience. And especially as things have become more short term, you talk to a lot of people and you say, we understand you're not happy about your investment opportunities, but what would you want to do? What would you expect? What would be success? We always use the line, if you don't know where you're going, you're going to end up someplace else. And I think a lot of people don't know where they're going right now. Of all the managers you talk to, are there anyone raising alarm bells of some dislocation they're seeing? So think about the subprime mortgage short and the crisis. Are you hearing any of those possible- Canaries uh, in the coal mine? (laughs) JGBs. There aren't any JGBs left to own. The market's effectively become completely privatized, and that's going to have some real systematic issues, particularly as it relates to banks. One is Europe it could go off a cliff. So people don't know. But I think people are both on the credit side and equity side getting excited about Europe because of the dislocation. And the other area, which is generic, for the first time in how many years, a lot of the credit managers are actually like, we might, but it's not there yet. We might have a distress cycle if rates keep going up. This actually could happen. And it's been a really long time. We are starting to have a little bit of a stressed cycle. That's been interesting on the credit side. If you ask us what we're most worried about, the banks are healthy. The U.S. investment banks are healthy. The amount of specialty finance, where risk is held in the private credit markets is really unknown. And I think there are a lot of people taking a lot of risks that I don't think they know what risks they're actually taking or how much exposure they have. Like the levered cash flow lenders, as rates keep going up, it's grown in a huge way. I think there's a lot of systematic risk in the lending market in the United States that's not in financial institutions. How does that play out? You start to see individual problems. You'll have individual companies that just have credit issues. You saw that in cryptocurrencies where there were people who were lenders and borrowers and counterparties, and all of a sudden there were massive liquidity squeezes, but it didn't turn out to be a systematic problem. So it's not still clear to me that it'll be a systematic problem, but I think you'll see a lot of individual bombs going off. If one of those bombs is big enough or connected enough, it'll probably set some other bombs off around it. I'm not sure it rises to a global financial crisis the way housing did, but it certainly is going to create a lot of credit opportunities ultimately for our managers who pick up the pieces. So I want to ask about private equity structures. John, you mentioned the secondary activity that's picking up. Continuation funds are increasing. What are you seeing managers actually do in those continuation funds? Are they holding the good assets? Are they holding assets they can't get rid of? What's happening in that space? Yes. Yeah, I was going to say. Usually when there is a Wall Street invention, there are winners and there are losers. Continuation funds, though, there's a use for almost everyone, at least in our opinion. 
It's really good for the GPs who get to continue to own a company. They get to crystallize fees, although if they're not rolling most of those fees in their equity, you should be asking a lot of questions, but they do at least get to crystallize it, make the investment. They get to continue to collect management fees on that asset. The holy grail was to raise a permanent capital vehicle for your GP. It was really hard for GPs to raise permanent capital vehicles. This is the one notch down from a permanent capital vehicle. So it's really good for the GPs. It's really good for the secondary funds that have way too much money and not enough other stuff to do with it. And it's really good for the LPs who are looking for realizations and weren't otherwise getting it at enough of a pace from the GPs. Or LPs who are building private equity from scratch and can buy in and have a bunch of operating data on the underlying companies they're buying into, which we were able to do in a couple of cases. And it was awesome. So it's not clear to me who's getting hurt by it. Therefore, I think unbelievable trajectory of continuation funds, I think is going to skyrocket. And you guys will be surprised by this, but I think that there really needs to be a light shined on the fees that are being charged. Never heard you say that before. I I know. I'm I'm trying to go outside my box. I'm trying something new, but we've already seen situations where the LPs who are not electing to continue are getting stuffed with fees. We're seeing deal fees that the manager's taking, and because there's not enough management fee, they're not being offset against it. You're starting to see all these games, which LPs are just smiling and going along with it. People really need to figure it out because it's not things that people negotiated up front early in funds. It's not things that people are really paying attention to. And um, so I do think that there will be the winners, which is the house, the casino, which are the managers. And maybe LPs win. Maybe they don't. I agree with everything that's been said in this, but I think there's also a side thing in private markets with real estate, specifically with the families where we actually see them keeping assets or entire funds, which is great because you have a great operator that you trust. They're high cash flowing properties. You actually can't replace that portfolio today. The idea that you have to be a forced seller of that because the fun life is over is really unappealing. So actually in real estate, our managers are more open to that when we ask them, are you willing Actually, a lot of it's coming from the LP community saying, will you keep these assets and hold on to them? If you look at assets raised by institutional real estate managers, the amount in private REITs versus private equity structured vehicles, the private REITs have swamped it. I don't think that's for the right reasons, which is we should hold the portfolios forever. It's been a asset grab, permanent capital, which private equity hasn't achieved, real estate managers have been able to achieve. And in a low interest rate environment, that 5 6 7% regular cash distribution was a pretty attractive thing to sell through retail channels. So it's led to massive cash raises. And so one of the things we're spending a lot of time on is we want to own real estate on a long-term buy and hold. There's a air pocket in real estate today. And at some point, you do want to own high quality office buildings and central business districts. You just don't know what the clearing price is yet. We want to own hospitality assets, and some are really attractive already, and some aren't. Everybody wanted to own warehouses when Amazon was buying every possible warehouse. Now, all of a sudden, Amazon's selling warehouses, and a few too many people long a few too many empty warehouses today. So that's creating a big opportunity in real estate. The question is, how do you take advantage of it? But there are these permanent long-term hold vehicles. For us, the real question, though, is do you want to invest in an existing one? Or do you want to think about creating your own, like what portfolio you're buying and are you creating a new portfolio versus buying someone else's portfolio? Today, we're more open to our managers who created a normal fund and now want to extend. When you go out today, you have to borrow 
the banks have slowed down big time on lending in real estate because they had done so much at the beginning of the year. The debt's there already at lower rates too. So again, why give that up? Because you're at the fun. The date is today and the fun life is over. I'm just curious as to how people think that the co-investment story will end up. Obviously, the last four or five years, co-investments have become a huge part of people's portfolio. At the end of the day, are they going to outperform their LP stakes or underperform? I haven't seen any data yet. I have a viewpoint on this. On the venture side, we have a lot of clients who are in the business and they do one-off deals. And we always tell them, well, if you're going to do it, be prolific because you want to actually create your own pseudo venture fund. And what we've found where they haven't had success on it is when you're doing one a year or two a year, because we really think venture belongs in that structure for a reason, because it's binary, a lot of it. Versus we do co-investment with our families on what we were talking about earlier, the middle market growth equity stuff, where we've had success. And I think for people who are thoughtful on the programs, a lot of them are just buying into their existing portfolios in some regard. They're just upping it. I think it just depends how you're implementing it and what areas you're actually doing it in is going to have a big determining factor on people's outcomes. You know what the levers are. The more that there's co-invest, the more it's going to resemble private equity in general. And then the question is, is there adverse selection of the deals that get offered? Probably a little bit. And there's so much of the activity, it probably looks the same. One of the things you find, particularly in the public side, the buy decisions aren't that hard. You can say every decision's hard. But people understand what the deal is, what a stock is, where it's priced. Selling ends up being a completely different phenomenon. So if the co-invest is just parry with the manager and manager selling, we're selling, fine, you're going to have a similar stream of returns. You get to the public side where people are doing portfolio replication or they're doing whatever they're going to do, but they have to make the sell decision. It's a totally different ballgame. Yeah, I think the public co-invest is really tough. It's lever beta, basically. <laughs> it becomes very tax efficient. I've got a couple of closing questions. We can wrap and then go to dinner <laughs> where the real conversation starts. <laughs> All right, we'll go around. The first question is, what type of investment do you gravitate to like a moth to the flame? This is so generic. I like scrappy managers who are in this space because they've been in the business forever and they have a skill set that no one really pays attention to and they're willing to stay at a size that enables them to execute on those little things. That's what we really love to look for. And a lot of our opportunities fit that dynamic, whether it's within the hedge fund space or even in real estate or private equity. Private credit, there's a lot of that. We're not doing the cash flow lending. There's a lot of these scrappy, amazing people who've been in the industry forever, and they're just okay being smaller and executing on this real hard work. I agree on the managers. I think it's where can we reduce the downside risk through utilizing our network to answer some questions that otherwise might not be answered and where we can create that edge. And as I said, national security, utilizing that network to get in and finding things that otherwise people just can't get to or can't get information or where we can hopefully add value. It's almost like being an activist and where we feel like we can increase the odds of success. Incredibly similar to Casey, which makes me feel good because I always like agreeing with Casey. Um, <laughs> but I would say one of the things that has changed a lot is when you're with a smaller manager where you're a lot of their capital, where you're an important partner, where they're doing something that's a little unusual, they tend to find a lot of flow that doesn't fit perfect for them. We can add a lot of value because we can create an introduction. We can help them find a partner or more and more, we're the partner to help them implement that strategy. 
it's still not a big percentage of our portfolio, but a growing percentage of our portfolio. One of the things that we really get attracted to is managers that do one thing really well, and then there's one thing that's slightly tangential, and we can anchor that. And we're not talking about strategy drift. We're just saying public equity in a narrow space, but they know the management team, and the management team is now starting a new private business, and they've got the chance to anchor it, and we can be there. There's a specialty finance business that's attached to it, and we can be there, and we can be the anchor again. More and more of the portfolio are things that we're the only investor. We're partnering with a manager. We're an important capital source. It's not wall crossing because it's not public, but it's like getting that early call on what do you think of this opportunity? Is it interesting to you? And being able to have managers that are interesting, smaller, more off the run, incredibly hungry, doing neat things, but where we can also partner to do more and add value to them. Bits and pieces of what you've all said, in case it wasn't obvious, I do like really contrarian stuff, (laughs) being in an empty room now that we've clarified what that means. I am very comfortable looking at young, hungry managers who are all in, not too fat and happy. Mine? Oh, it's been underlying assets. It could be managers, but underlying assets that you can own for a really long time. Whether it's sports franchises, like doing with Arctos, or the kind of stuff that Brent Bishore owns, these tiny little family businesses that have been around forever and will probably continue to be around. I love that stuff. And even on the public stuff that I've been doing or talking about before, I finally realized, hey, the things I understand are asset management businesses. Let me just own that stuff. So something like Blue Owl, which is Owl Rock and Dial. You know the people, you know they're going to grow, which is good if you're the GP, you can own the stock, but also the underlying assets are these great cash flowing machines. So that's the stuff I love. How about big blind spots? I was thinking about this because we've been doing this for so long, 25 years. Part of our competitive edge for a lot of us is our pattern recognition. This year's interesting in pattern recognition. When things go down and they keep going down, our instincts, because we're all a little contrarian, we should be buyers. We just had this debate on the investment team in the public portfolio. I don't know, though. Growth is down a lot, but some of these companies could go down even more. A lot of those things that you instinctually grew up on and then created pattern recognition around, you just got to be careful that you're creating a framework and discipline that still works. And we still believe in a lot of that stuff, but you're not getting caught up in some of your hardwired patterns, not actually focusing and re-underwriting the portfolio at that moment in time to say the incremental dollar might go to value with a specific manager and not to rebalance growth because we don't know where that's going to shake out. This is sort of related to that in terms of a pattern of recognition that I'm realizing as I look at some of the stuff I've done historically. I tend to like concentrated managers. The argument for that is very much they know what they own, they know every detail, and they're all in on the biggest things that they like. But there's a risk of concentrated managers. Private equity is great because you're not allowed to sell. It forces you to hold when every sort of internal psyche is telling you that you want to sell. Concentrated managers works against that because they do tend to have much bigger swings in performance and it can lead to really bad investor behavior if it's a liquid manager. My blind spot is there are these things that I love that historically I was able to find really interesting managers that do them and did well. And I don't want to fall too much into that at a portfolio level. I'm going to say a couple things. Having more than one blind spot might not be the best thing, but it's led to a bunch of change here. So one, we make a big deal about only hiring managers we're incredibly excited about hiring because we'd much rather not hire a manager in which we had than hire a manager in which we hadn't. And we also have all been trained that we don't want to follow flows and that when a manager's down, 
We know them. We like what they do. We want to be buying more of that. Our manager turnover has probably been too low. When someone actually is underperforming, people haven't changed. Their style hasn't changed, but the world has changed. And that's leading to bad performance. You've got to sell. And we've been too slow to have portfolio turnover because I think we feel like portfolio turnover means we've made too many manager hire failures. And in reality, you need some turnover the bluest of chip managers from 25 years ago just aren't anymore. Although there's plenty of managers we've been with over 20 years, most you haven't. And if the average is eight or nine years, it probably should be six. So a little bit shorter. The other one for us is we're adamant that we're not market timers. We've got these strategic asset allocations. But I think that means you don't spend enough time thinking about relative value credit versus equities. Should we just own a lot more equities because they're cheap or should we just own a lot more fixed income because the risk reward there is more attractive than equities? Making bigger asset allocation changes versus we've got these policy portfolios. We understand the risk in the policy portfolios. We're rebalancing around those targets versus saying, are we in a regime change where inflation's here to stay and rates are higher? And that just means our policy portfolio should be different. I would echo everything everybody said. We spent a lot of time looking at our IRR with hedge fund managers. We've been able to add a couple hundred basis points by taking money away when they're up and adding when they're down. And I don't know if COVID has come into it or just the difficulty, but there's a lot of people who are just tired. And you're used to managers who are very driven and they're going to jump right back in when they get knocked down. There's been so much money made that some of these managers have become a little bit more defensive and are looking to keep their businesses. And so my blind spot is really making sure that I understand why a manager is getting out of bed in the morning. And there are managers that have surprised me that I thought would continue fighting versus playing defense. I've seen it more in the last year or two than I had in the last 25 years. Here's what I struggle with. I very much feel the same way, actually, in trying to figure it out. Then what I struggle with is in a handful of those cases, when you sit down with that manager, inevitably I end up leaving much happier with the situation because A, I'm not looking at their performance and B, they are a steady hand and they've been in the business for a long time and they've seen cycles and they're very comfortable saying, well, now we're going to go on offense. We're doing exactly the same so thing. Tough. And then you end up holding longer. I try so hard to make sure you're not always investing in the new shiny penny, but things have run their course. There's new generations. And by the way, a lot of the managers are people we grew up with in the business. Now it's time to go to people who are a lot younger than us. That's a big change. Being nimble. We've tried to not re-up with private equity managers one fund too early. And we're trying to, instead of cutting a hedge fund manager in half, just coming right out. And asking ourselves the question, if we weren't invested today, would we invest? We have a whole list of questions we ask ourselves every time we review managers, which we do on a regular quarterly basis. But we've recently added, you must list what the original underwriting thesis was. And is it still true? And would you make the investment today? So we've always asked the question, would you buy them if they're down? And obviously, that's the first question you ask yourself because we're all taught about mean reversion. We're all taught you're a great partner to these managers when you're buying them when they're down and when they're down is the right time because all the other money's leaving. Would I make this investment today? 
and again, even harder, why did I make the investment? Is it still true or is it just as I'm comfortable with it? By asking that question and being really surprised by the answers more often than not, because they have gotten too complacent, they have gotten too comfortable, they don't really understand that their strategy is not working in today's environment has led us to greater turnover. There's a framework for all of this. So Andy Duke's got a new book coming out. I'm not sure if it'll be out just before or just after this comes out called Quit. And it's all about that decision when you exit something. And one of the themes from the research in the book is by the time you're sure that you're ready to quit, it's definitely too late. Before we wrap, last time we did this, we were talking about Dave Swenson when he had passed away. And this time around, sadly, it's Ira, John's dad, who's been close to us for a long time. I don't know how to do this other than, John, if there's anything you want to lead us off in saying about your amazing dad. Well, thank you. He loved all you guys and loved the dinners down in Florida. Just learned a lot. And there's a lot of great lessons that I've learned over the years from him and really owe my career to him. He loved this group and loved a lot of the conversations going back to, was it 2002? <laughs> it was our first dinner. And we won't discuss that one, but it was always constantly looking to learn. And I think that's what he loved about this group was that every single person here is constantly looking to learn. He always stressed to me, you have two ears, one mouth, use them proportionally. I think all of us in this group, we got a lot to say, but it's all good <laughs> stuff. Thank you, Ted. Well, we'll go toast, Ira. And thanks, guys, for doing this. A lot of fun, as always. Thanks for listening to the show. If you like what you heard, hop on our website at capitalallocators.com, where you can access past shows, join our mailing list, and sign up for premium content. Have a good one, and see you next time. 